Shalom, everyone. I wanted to start this week with a conversation I had with a couple of friends. One of the many things that the three of us have in common is that for our entire lives, we've had to perform the anxiety-inducing song, Manish Tanah, at our family seders every year. Much of the seder is designed to fulfill the obligation of telling the story of the exodus of the Jewish people to one's children. And the Manish Tanah, also known as the four questions, is the start of this process. It's designed to pique a child's curiosity about what is happening, to direct them towards some of the key points of the Seder, and is performed in such a way that is meant to hold the child's attention for what can be quite a lengthy retelling of this famous story. As an annual singer of this song, this idea got me thinking, do I still need my curiosity piqued? Do I really need a monotonous melody to hold my attention? And why am I still the one who even has to ask these four questions in the first place? So I enlisted Tom and Zach to help me break this one down. I'm Zach. I am 25 years old. I live in Israel. I'm currently in Haifa. I've been here for nearly three years, originally from Perth. And I, yeah, that's, that's pretty much everything that's important about me. Uh, my name's Thomas Bruins, and you can call me Tom. <laughs> and I've been <laughs> in Melbourne for two years now. I also moved from Perth and I'm currently doing my honours at Monash University. And so do you guys, like, have you discussed with your families what you're doing for Pesach this year? Oh, I imagine, I'm pretty sure we're going to do some sort of a Zoom situation for, for some part of it. But yeah, it's, I don't know, a bit dicey. Yeah, well, I was actually meant to be in Perth with my family for Pesach this year, but due to everything that's happening in the world, I'm not, which is sad. It's also going to be my first Pesach since moving to Israel, not with my family. And so we haven't, we haven't started the negotiations yet, but I assume, I assume there'll be some kind of attempted video call, but my parents aren't amazing with technology. So not sure if it'll be a success. Something I wanted to chat to you guys about is that, you know, one of the big feature points of the Seder is the, the Manish Tanah song. Um, and I think that most people have this image of this cute little kid singing the song in this nice little high-pitched voice, asking the four questions, and the whole family, like, looking on in awe and respect and just enjoying this performance. But for all three of us, that's not really been the case. Um, do you guys maybe want to share how Manish Tanah works in your family? So I'm the youngest of, of four boys and there were always jokes at Pesach about like which one of us was which son in the Pesach story as well. I was, I was obviously the one that uh, didn't even know how to ask a question, yeah, nice. um, which I took, as, I took as a win because I didn't want to be the simple one. Yeah, I, I feel like I was in the top two, but um, <laughs> yeah, grew up and always got forced to sing Manish Tana and hated it, hated it, hated it. It was so embarrassing because we would usually have not like a huge seder, but at least, you know, like 
cousins and some form of family friend or extended family vibe. And I would always be forced to sing Manish Tana in front of people that I didn't know. And I hated it. And I was really excited when my younger cousins, I have one that's about three years younger than me and four or five years younger than me. And I was just waiting for when they would be ready to take over the reins and sing Manish Tana in my place. And the first year where it was proposed that they sing, they, they flat out denied and, and tantrumed and were crying. And so I ended up singing it with them, which was me just singing it by myself. Of course. And that kind of was the pattern for the next five years uh, of me just always ending up having to sing Manish Tana, even though by this point I had younger cousins who weren't that young and, and et cetera. And to this day, when I'm 25, I still am the token young person singing Manish Tana at the Pesach Seder, even though I have always someone who's younger than me uh, who just refuses. And it's almost become like a, a semi-joke and a semi-like I'm the only one that's allowed to sing Manish Tana as if it's some kind of privilege. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what happens this year. If uh, Maybe there will be encouragement for there to be a Zoom call so that purely I can sing Manish Tana. Who knows? <laughs> Tom, what about you? How does it work for you guys? In, I'm the youngest of, of three. Um, so I'm also the youngest of all of my immediate kind of first cousins and all that jazz. So whenever I'm with my Perth family, uh, I would always just have to sing it. But um, I'd also always be very sheepish and never super keen on it. So I'd sing the first verse and then everyone else would join in, yeah. you know, just to, just to help me out, which is always nice. But yeah, still hated it, you know? Yeah. yeah never, never a big fan. Yeah. There's always a discussion that happens at some point in the night where like, I feel like I'm singing and all the older generation are like, oh my God, your Jewish education. <laughs> it's so good. It's like time for me to shine and show yeah. what I know and like show up that I've actually learned something. That's really funny because me and all of my brothers went to a Jewish school and yet my dad would always turn to me and one other brother who, well, I guess the most involved in, in Habo in the youth movement, he would always turn to me and this particular brother as like the ones that have the most Jewish education. And it was like, yeah, the, the responsibility was firmly put on us as like, even though all of you went to a Jewish school for your entire lives, like... It's only you two know how to do this. And I'm still the one singing Manish Tana. <laughs> From speaking to Tom and Zach, it, it seems to me that the intention behind Manish Tana becomes quite confusing when it's a group of fairly well-educated 25-year-olds filling the role of a curious child who is new to all of this. So how can we still make sense of this? Well, while I'm still dreading the prospect of performing this song in front of my family again, and fortunately enough, that seems to be off the table for this year. Um, I am still trying to view it as some sort of opportunity. I'm, I'm trying to see it as an opportunity to remind myself that I am still very curious. I don't know everything and that there are always opportunities to learn something new, even by asking the same basic questions again and again, which in many ways is the whole point of the Seder in the first place. Kayla Kaleno, this is the Pesach Podcast. My name is Gus, and today, songs from the Seder. 
this episode, I'm going to be joined by Hannah. Hey, guys. Hey, Hannah. Um, as we take a deep dive into the iconic songs from the Haggadah, digging into their meaning, where they come from, and how they fit into this crazy night of storytelling. I'm excited. So am I. We're going to start off with Act 1, Echad Miodea. Echad Miodea Echad Aniodea So, Gus, can you tell us a bit about this one? Yeah, well, I guess first let's um, let's listen to a few different examples because there are so many versions of this song. So right. let's listen to a few of them. Hey, everybody, I got a quick question for you. Who knows one? I know one. <laughs> one is God. One is God. One is God. In the heaven and the earth. Ba-da-da-da-da-da-da. I say hoo ha, hoo ha ha. I say hoo ha, hoo ha ha. Who knows one? I know one. One is Hashem, one is Hashem, one is Hashem. In the heaven, on the earth, yeah, la 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 la. Seven. I know seven. Seven are the days of the week. Six of the books of Mishnah, five of the books of Torah, four of the Mahas, and five of the two of the Lovels and Moshe brought. One is Hashem, one is Hashem, one is Hashem. So some are clearly, you know, a bit better yeah. than others. Obviously, that was that was a lot. Yeah, um, but for me, the best version was actually composed by this band called uh, Nikmat HaTraktor, which means the the tractor's revenge. Right. Um, and it was sung by Ohad Naharin. And basically, this version was made specifically to soundtrack uh, a dance. Um, it's a dance performance called Kir from the Bat Sheva Dance Company in Israel. Um, and so let's have a quick listen to this song. If you haven't seen the dance for this, which I believe you haven't yet. I think I watched the first part and I was blown away. Yeah, okay. Well, you've got to watch the whole thing. I'll put the link in the description to this episode. It's an unbelievable performance. And um, it was a really interesting use of this song from the Haggadah. But basically, the, the common link between all these versions that we've heard so far is their undeniable catchiness. Like, even when it's a bit lame, it's still a super catchy song. So some of them might be a bit harder to listen to, a bit cringy, but nonetheless, they kind of get stuck in your head. Like, I know that I'm going to be singing this song for so long, the rest of the week. Um, and when you're, you know, at the Seder and everyone's singing as loudly as you, they can, it's kind of hard not to join in, right? Right. Um, and so that's kind of like one of the defining aspects of this song is its repetitiveness and its catchiness. Cool. Wow. That was really interesting so Gus do you know where does this song actually come from yeah so that's a really interesting question um this song was actually quite a late addition to the Haggadah Uh, same with like a lot of the songs towards the end of the Haggadah they were added quite late and they all have sort of different uh origins this one was said to be discovered in the walls of an old synagogue in Germany whoa yeah 
Um, and it may go back to the time of a guy called Eliezer of Worms. Um, and he was a 14th century halachist who was part of the, the German sort of Hasidic movement of the time. Um, this song also seems to have some connections to Christianity. You find all these versions of who knows one that seem to relate more to a Christian mm. version of religion and a Christian version right. of God. Um, but there also seems to be sort of religious version of this Jewish folk song called Guter Friend Ich Frage Dich. What does that mean? Yeah, so it means good friend, uh, may I ask you? What are they asking? Well, let's listen. Guter Freund, ich frage dich. Beste Freund, was fragst du mich? Sag mir mal das Erste. Eins und den ist Gott allein, der da lebt, der da schwebt, im Himmel und auf Erden. So the, the lyrics that song basically translate to, good friend, I ask you, best friend, what do you ask me? Tell me what the number one is. One times one is God alone. Who lives there? Who is suspended there in heaven and on earth? Does that Beautiful. sound familiar though? Yeah. Yeah, so this seems bit. to be like the most likely origin of what we now know today as Echad wow. Meodea. That is wild. And what exactly is the point of the song? So we know where the song came from. Yeah. We know kind of what it means. What's, sort of. Sort of. <laughs> what's the point of it? Yeah, so to me it's always felt like one of those songs that's more about the vibe and the gimmick than the yeah. than the meaning like i think a lot of people kind of just get into the song for what it is rather than giving too much thought to the words but you know on, on one hand it's like a really amazing educational tool like from seeing this song over and over again in primary school it's etched in my brain that there are six books in the mishnah there are 11 stars in joseph's dream like these are things that i wouldn't know if not for this mm. song and so the use of repetition in this song, while exhausting, is also a really effective way of remembering significant moments in the story of the Jewish people. And when you think about the heart of the Passover ritual, it's not just about telling the story of Exodus, you know, t- telling about how he went from slavery for- to freedom, but it's the retelling of the story. Yeah. We do it every year, and it's our responsibility to tell this story year after year. So Echad Meyodeh is sort of a symbol of that need to retell um and the idea of through repetition and through constant recitation of these things we actually affirm them and continue to remind ourselves of them but you know on the other hand every time we say this thing and every time we get back to the chorus we say echad eloheinu you know Mm. one is hashem um which is certainly not the focus of many of the satyrs in our community probably not either of our i didn't think about it but that's very true yeah and so there's been a lot of attempts to rewrite this song rewrite the original lyrics um so there's like a who knows one feminist edition and there's a whole bunch of other ones but just none of them have really stuck to be honest none of them have the same you know same ring yeah yeah and so they're worth looking at and they're worth thinking about but they don't quite create the same vibe as this current one. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking a lot about, you know, the main theme of Passover and of the Seder is this physical freedom, this idea of physically leaving Egypt. But the more important side of things for a lot of people is the spiritual, mental, emotional freeing of our people. Um, and so while this song is, you know, bookended mm-hmm. by 
things that maybe don't hold so much significance for us. One is Hashem and 13 are the attributes of God. The rest of the song is, you know, full of significant moments in Jewish memory. Fully. We have, I think I learned so much yeah. about... I went to a Jewish school, but I learned so much about <laughs> the religion from this song. From this song. And, it's you know, we've got the two tablets from Moshe. We've got our three forefathers, our four foremothers, you know. It also teaches us about some of the key milestones, key cultural practices. We've got the five books of the Torah, the six books of the Mishnah. We've got Shabbat. We've got Brit Milal, Brit Shalom. We have the Ten Commandments, really key parts of Jewish culture. Um, and, of course, we've also got our identity as, like, a diverse group of people, a diverse civilization when we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. And so, in a sense, this song captures our story. It captures what we did with mm-hmm. our freedom since leaving Egypt. It it shows this sense of emancipation, and it's maybe why we find such joy, passion, and sometimes intensity in singing this song. Um, mm-hmm. It's basically a small slice of who we are and what we've done with our freedom. And so I guess I see it as an appropriate time to, to consider what else should we be doing? You know, here's this long list of what has happened, what the Jewish people have done, what we have created. And maybe it's a good time in the state of the think about, like, are we happy with all these things? And mm. what do we want to add to it? And what, as a free people, can we do in the year to come? Yeah. I also feel like now with so much time, much more time on our hands, it's, yeah. it is a really good point to reflect on where our culture can be going and what we can be doing. And maybe this year at your smaller cedar room, it could be a time to speak with your family about what, what you want to be doing. But Absolutely. Yeah. Act two, Chad Gadia. Now, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this song. Chad Gadia, a.k.a. One Little Goat. So Chagadia is another big cumulative song at the at the end of the Seder that's, um, you know, at the end of the Seder we've got our collection of fun and, like, participatory songs. Um, so just like Echad Odea builds and builds and slowly spins out of control. Um, the narrative is, you know, it starts with a nice father buying a goat for Tuzuzim, mm. as we all know, but this goat is eaten by a cat. And that, ah. that cat is bitten by a dog who is oh, no. beaten with a stick and is burnt by a fire that's extinguished by water that's consumed by an ox who's killed by a shochet who is then oh. killed by the angel of death who is finally smote by God himself. So once again, we have this song where everything comes full circle back to God. Right. Okay. But why? So why do we sing this at our Seder? Well, firstly, just like Echad Meodea, it's a song that's extremely popular with children and is possibly needed to wake them up from what's now kind of the sleepy time of the Seder and re-engage them as we drift later and later into the night. Um, But there's been two main rabbinic interpretations of this song. The first is that this playful little tune is essentially an allegory for the fate of the Jewish people. How exactly? Well, in this interpretation, every character in the song symbolizes a different nation that conquered the land of Israel. So the kid is the Jewish people. 
and after them comes the cat, who are the Assyrians, and after that the dog, who's the Babylonian, the stick, who is the Persians, the fire, the Macedonians, the water, the Roman Empire, the ox are the Saracens, and the slaughterer, the Crusaders, the angel of death is the Turks, and finally at the end, God returns the Jews back to the land of Israel. This interpretation became quite popular. Uh, apparently it first appeared in a pamphlet in the German city of Leipzig, and was written by a guy called Philip Nicodemus Lebrecht. Killed it. Hopefully said that right. Um, it tracks relatively well with the history of the land of Israel, but there's no real proof that actually ties this song to this interpretation. Like, there's no explanation for why the cat is necessarily the Assyrians, if you know what I mean. Mm, so I'm vibing from you that you see this as a possible interpretation that could work, but not probably not what the author had in mind. Yeah, exactly. So what about a second interpretation? Well, this one also starts out with some important historical info. Um, the price of Tuzuzim, which is mentioned in every stanza of this song, um, has been discussed as being equal to the half-shekel tax that every adult Israeli male was made to pay in the desert following the exodus from Egypt. Yeah, that makes sense. Of course. So um, some rabbis have equated the price of Tuzuzim to the price of a Jewish soul, as this is the price that every adult male had to pay. Mm -hmm. So in this interpretation, the song would function as a sort of metaphor for a journey of self-discovery, self-development, whereby the rest of the song lists the different trials and tribulations that every Jewish soul might face throughout their life. Mm -hmm. Again, this interpretation kind of works, as long as you're willing to, you know, draw a connection between a tax that was placed on only Jewish men to the price of a soul, which firstly requires a belief in a soul, it requires the belief that souls can have a specific value, and it also needs some level of misogyny. Mm. So, needless to say, I'm not the biggest fan of that interpretation yeah, either. Me, me neither. So, okay, I feel like we've gone through a couple of interpretations. We just still don't really have a clear answer. So I'm going to ask again, what is the deal with this song? So, I mean, there's all sorts of other explanations of, like, what each animal could maybe represent. But ultimately, from what I've read and what I've understood, the most likely explanation is that Khadgadya is not necessarily any more complicated than it seems. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to be based on similar folk songs and melodies that existed at the time. And we're talking about like medieval times over here. Um, so it kind of just seems like Chad was possibly just another lighthearted and humorous folk song that somehow fi- found its way into the post-dinner fun at the Seder and has never left. It is really fun. Like, yeah. Why yeah. Not? And I can imagine sort of medieval Jews just after a long wine-filled dinner breaking out into this song and it maybe just stuck. Mm. The question of how they wrote this specific folk song, though, seems to have a clearer answer as it, it seems pretty closely connected to specific passages from the Midrash. Basically, there's, there's one specific part where Nimrod's telling Avraham to worship fire and Avraham objects and says, well... Better to worship the water that puts out the fire. And Nimrod agrees with that. So Avraham suggests maybe they should instead worship the clouds that carry the water. Mm. And this goes on and on and on until (laughs) Nimrod loses his temper and says, you know what, I don't want to play this game anymore. I think I would agree with him. (laughs) I would as well, but that sort of argument kind of follows the the track of the song. Yeah, it does. Um, Another potential source for this song's style is from an excerpt in Pirkei Avot, where Hillel is watching a skull 
float downstream and he says because you have drowned others others have drowned you and in the end those who drowned you will themselves be drowned this commentary from Hillel mirrors that sort of chain of retribution in the song something else that always struck me as odd about this song is the word themselves Chadgadya is not the Hebrew for one little goat and in fact the whole song Whilst it is written in Hebrew letters, definitely doesn't seem to be Hebrew. What's going on here? That's that's some fine linguistic work, Hansi. This song's <laughs> actually written in Aramaic, in the Haggadah. Whoa. But the weird thing is it was probably written by a native Yiddish speaker. Really? What do you what do you mean? Well, Haggadah can be traced back to medieval times, and this is a time in history where Jews were not speaking Aramaic at all. They were speaking Yiddish. And most people seem to agree that Chagadya would have been composed in, in Yiddish, as this was the primary language of the Jews at the time, and then at some point was translated into Aramaic, but it wasn't translated very well. Oh no, what, what's wrong with the translation? Well, the song's almost entirely in Aramaic. We start off with Chagadya, which is Aramaic for one little goat, and then we have the Aramaic word for cat, which is Shunra. We also have the Aramaic word for dog, which is kalba, and this goes on for a while. But towards the end of the song, it seems that the writers either got a bit lazy or started running out of Aramaic words because they just reverted to the more familiar Hebrew language. Okay. So we see that in later when we're talking about the slaughterer, the Hebrew word hashochet is used instead of the Aramaic nachosa. And the angel of death is also in Hebrew. It's malach hamavet instead of the Aramaic malach mota. And finally, we have the, you know, the Holy One, blessed be He, is translated into the Hebrew HaKodesh, HaKodesh HaBaruchu, rather than the Aramaic Kudsha Berichu. So there are also many grammatical errors. They are riddled throughout this song, and some of them are ones that a fluent Aramaic speaker would never make. So we have um, Dizvan Abba, which is that father bought, and until recently... In the song, it was circulated as Dezaven Abba, which means that father sold. Mm. And so a lot of people have been singing this song saying, father sold the goat for Tuzuzin, which was just really an error made by the original authors. There's also the part where it says, Atal Shunra Va'achla Lagadia, which says there came a cat that ate the kid. But in Aramaic, the word cat, Shunra, is masculine. So it should really be um, Achal instead of Achla. It should be Atal Shunra Va'achal Lagadya. And this particular mistake seems to stem from the fact that it was native Yiddish speakers at the time, because in German and in Yiddish, cat is a feminine word, like it's used in the song. So if they were so bad at Aramaic, why did they translate the song in the first place? A lot of people have said it's because they wanted to hide the meaning of the song from, you know, the NJs, the non-Jews, the Goyim at the time. Yeah, that seems pretty legit. Yeah, it does, but it overlooks the fact that when it was published, it included a full German translation in the original publication. So the truth is we actually don't know why they translated into Aramaic. Maybe it was just to add to the general, like, fun and silliness of the song. So kooky. Yeah, and maybe it was their attempt to revive Aramaic. It obviously didn't work that well, yeah. but at least people sing it every year now at the Seder. Sing it with me. Yeah, you got it. Act 3. Dianu. 
Howard Jacobson is a British novelist and journalist who's known for writing comedies that focus on the dilemmas of British Jewish characters. About his own writing, Jacobson has said, I'm not by any means conventionally Jewish. I don't go to shul. What I feel is that I have a Jewish mind. I have a Jewish intelligence. I feel linked to previous Jewish minds of the past. I don't know what kind of trouble this gets somebody into, a disputatious mind. What a Jew is has been made by the experience of 5,000 years. That's what shapes the Jewish sense of humor. That's what shaped Jewish pugnacity or tenaciousness. In this act, we'll be hearing Howard's thoughts on the classic Seder song, Dayenu. Dayenu, enough already. One of the most enjoyable parts of the Passover ceremony is the singing, invariably full-throated in my experience, of all 15 verses of Dianel. Had he brought us out from Egypt and not carried out judgments against them, Dianel, it would have sufficed. Had he carried out judgments against them and not against their idols, Dianel, it would have sufficed. Had he destroyed their idols and not smitten their firstborn, Dianel, enough already. That... Of course, though we thought our comical uncles blasphemous when they said it at the Seder table, enough already, when do we eat, is what the word Dayenu means. It would have sufficed. It would have been enough. We can imagine a point at which we would have been satisfied, except that as a people, we are never satisfied. In the midst of gratitude, there is always a little something else we feel we have to ask for. Isn't this what Dayenu means? Hence the number of rogue Dayenus that spring up every day. Feminist Dianos, Zionist and anti-Zionist Dianos, even I recall reading a Dianal praising the invasion of Iraq. If he had destroyed the Bart party idols and not smitten Uday and Kusay Dianal, it would have been enough for us. The Dianal is a please masquerading as a thank you. We give thanks in order to ask for more. We sing Dianal at a solemn moment in the Seder service. Soon after, we have spilled a drop of wine from our glasses, one drop for each plague. It is a song of praise to the Almighty, thanking Him for our deliverances from slavery in Egypt and for the many gifts, including the Sabbath and the Torah, He bestowed upon us thereafter. As such, it is a spiritual high point of the service. Yet we sing it with immense gusto and, at many a Seder I've attended, mirth. A mirth that is over and over the pleasure we take in the inordinacy of God's munificence. Why? Because we know that we are making a great joke at our own expense. Without a doubt, it is owing to God's bounty and protection that we are in the position to be making jokes at all. But, as with all good jokes, there is a whiff of terror in this one too. How funny would it have been had God left the job half done, and each verse pivots around a job half done. How funny will it be when the things he doesn't do outweighs the things he does? Could we say that this thread is no less psychological than historical? We fear abandonment. What happens when the giving stops? The Dianal is a series of self-generating conditional clauses composed, if you like, in that most cop-draying of all tenses, the Judeo-hypothetico-preconditional, in which problems are imagined in advance of their occurring, imagined, indeed, in spite of their having been averted, and there is no fathoming the sequence of causation. Do our travails precede our giving thanks, or does our giving thanks occasion our travails? In one sense, our gratitude is forever playing catch-up with his infinite magnanimity, but in another, driven on by the rhythmic expectations of those clauses, it is we who are pushing him to go on showering us with more favours. 
Yet, there is a purpose in this nudging. Superfluous though we insist each of God's favours and blessings to us was, the truth is, we would have been in serious trouble without any of them. For where would have been the use in his leading us to the Red Sea had he not parted it? Or our wandering for forty years in the wilderness had he not provided us with manna? We say the one would have sufficed without the other, but in fact, it would not. Thus the song is as much a rehearsal of complaints we might have voiced, and might voice yet, as it is a hymn of praise. Built into this magnificent song of gratitude, therefore, is the fact of our colossal ingratitude. Nothing is enough for us, not because we are vainglorious or greedy, but because our appetite for intellectual dissatisfaction, like our apprehension of disaster, knows no bounds. Call it the ravenous of reasoning, the rabbinic on the one hand this, on the other hand that. Call it our love of striking bargains. Call it hyperbole. Call it what you like. It is the bedrock of Jewish comedy, as it is the bedrock of our faith. The Jewish joke is above all a strategy for survival. It looks of necessity to the future. It anticipates a woe before that woe is visited upon us. It gets in first with the criticism and the cruelty. If anybody is going to knock us around, it won't be the Cossacks, it will be ourselves. So that while a Jewish joke appears to be the perfecting of self-denigration, it is actually the opposite. It is the fruit of a perpetual vigilance and in the process demonstrates an intelligence that is, because it has to be, unremitting. If there were such a thing as a perfect Jewish joke, and who is to say that the Diana is not, it would never finish. Ours is a religion of suspense. We wait and wait for a God who cannot show himself and a Messiah we would rather never came. We await an end as we await a punchline to a narrative that has no end. And just when we thought it was all over, it begins again. What are the last words of Dianel? It would have sufficed us. But by now, our ears demand another clause, another gift, another setback for God to overcome. There is no final thank you because there is no final sufficiency. In this way, the grammar of Dianel hovers on the edge of tragedy. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, declaimed the Anglo-Catholic poet T.S. Eliot. Jewish time is more vertiginous still because of the element of joking we impart to it. Oi, am I thirsty, cries the old Jewish man. Oi, am I thirsty. Alarmed bystander give him a drink. Gratefully, he glugs it down. Oi, he cries, was I thirsty. Then and now change places in the absurd hyperbole of suffering, but at least to be able to say we were thirsty is a liberation if not from the memory of thirst, then from thirst itself. This liberation is what the Dianal commemorates. The comic repetition of it would have sufficed us asserts that there is still time for such a word, that it will go on sufficing whatever happens. In this, does it not epitomize the spirit of retelling, remaking and re-remembering that is the Passover itself?
had a lot of help on this episode, and I wanted to give a quick shout out to everyone who was involved. Thank you to Zach Freund and Tom Bruins for their insight into their Marnish Tanakh struggles. We recorded this episode before the Seder itself, and I can now confirm that both Tom and Zach were called into their families' respective Seders in order to perform their singing duties. Thank you to Steph Zoe for that beautiful rendition of Guter Freund. It's not easy when you get a random text asking you to sing a song that you've never heard of before in a foreign language. Thank you to Hannah Sharp for all her help in recording this. And finally, thank you to Ralph Connie for his recording of Howard Jacobson's text, Dianel, Enough Already. Thanks for listening and tune in throughout the week for more episodes from the Pesach podcast.